this week we're going to discuss intermittent fasting with Dr. Stephen Gangster Wong. <laughs> Ooh, I get a gangster? Yeah. Well, I'm just going to make up. I don't know your middle name yet, so nice. every week you'll get a new one. Sweet. Do I get triad too? I was in Asia for a while. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have the tattoos? Dude, you mean the tiger and the and the white the white tiger Qinglong and Bai Hu? Yeah, yeah. For anyone out you out there, if you guys do want to get the tattoos, the the classic way is the Qinglong on the left shoulder, the Bai Hu on the right shoulder. But don't forget that kind of means you're part of a triad now. <laughs> yeah, be careful who sees those. Yeah, maybe not in Asian hot springs or something. So the two types of intermittent fasting that we'll discuss on this show. One is going to be the condensed eating time where people generally, they skip breakfast, but you don't have to, but we squish all the eating into an eight or 10 hour period. That's the first one. The second one would be that you fast for 24 hours twice a week. Sweet. And I think we're going to call that first one, the squishing into a window, the intermittent fasting. And I kind of call the other one, I don't know if anyone else... I'm sure there's people who are really into it, but I just call that normal fasting. So if it's over like 24 or 36 hours, we should call that full fasting. Solid. Sweet. Got our definitions clear. So in intermittent fasting, what are we looking at happening in the, in the physiology from a TCM perspective? Sweet. So this is an interesting one because I think just like we were talking about in some of the previous episodes... When people go to uh, Chinese medicine school, they're like, okay, first of all, I can never touch wind again. So that's totally out the window. I'm afraid of everything cold. So I guess I can't even get within five feet of a refrigerator. You know, food preservation will become a problem. <laughs> well, then another thing that you learn is that um, porridge is super duper healthy, like rice porridge, and that you should never fast. So this is what a lot of schools some in China and definitely the ones in America seem to be talking about this where fasting doesn't fit Chinese medicine and that um, the goodness of rice porridge is infinite. And so we have um, a little bit of issues and problems with those. So that kind of comes down to a whole lot of things. It doesn't technically mean carbs are always bad for you, but it does mean they generate fluids in your middle. And so we can talk about this if we get into the five flavors in another episode. But as a quick um, advance to that, then we want to remember that um, all the sweet things, and absolutely carbs are and have always been identified as sweet by Chinese medicine, all sweet flavored things generate fluids in our body, specifically our middle burner or spleen. And so the reason why so many people do so much better on less carbs is because in modern society, most of us have dampness. And when you're generating extra fluids on top of that dampness, it causes a lot of problems. So it's not to say carbs are always bad. In fact, if someone's starving, that's exactly what you should give them. But for those of you who know how to read tongues, make sure and check their, check their tongue. And if you see dry or cracked tongue, carb them up. But if you see dampness, carb it down, you know. Anyway, yeah. No, I mean, I think that's a really important point because I personally have heard so often in school, it was, you know, get, get your kanji in the morning, you know, get yep. your oatmeal. Whatever it is, it's good for you. It strengthens the spleen. That's what we're told. And me always having a damp presentation. And like you said, most of us in the West mm -hmm. having a damp presentation, maybe not the best thing, maybe not as, as much of a silver bullet as we were taught in school. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And that's, the, you know, that's a, an, an annoying, I don't know if it's annoying. If it is annoying, I think we should be annoying, but it's that question where you're like, okay, it's tonifying my spleens. What? We should always be asking that question. And they, they, you know, if they're well read and, and everything and they, you know, know the Neijing, then hopefully their answer is it's tonifying the spleen's fluids. Well, we don't need a ton of yin fluid in our spleen. We need some, but we don't need a ton because hopefully they've also learned in school the spleen doesn't like dampness. It doesn't it prefers dryness, right? Or dryerness. There is technically such a thing as too dry of a spleen, but that's a little bit we'll save that for a different different time. Very few people have that. That's called um, spleen constriction, according to the Shang Han or Pi So what happens in the body then when we when we condense our eating period when we when we aren't eating? Right. <clears throat> so this is actually pretty similar to um, Western medicine for, as far as you know intermittent fasting. Basically, once you get to a certain time period, I think they call it twelve hours, then you start getting a lot of uh, endocrine benefits and your liver starts doing different jobs as opposed to just processing the food. We think, we, we think the same thing. In fact, from our perspective, the liver does actually control most of what Western people would call the endocrine system. Technically not the adrenals, so that's true that we put that under the kidney system. But the vast majority of what Western people call the endocrine or hormone system, we attribute to what we call the liver system. And it's true when the liver is not processing for our food, it's processing, it's it's regulating, and it's affecting all the blood and how we store the blood in the liver and how it regulates and moves things with liver and gallbladder chi. For those of you who are familiar with the TG or the chi dynamic, big shout out to that, also liver gallbladder. So those are all parts of the things that can happen when we're not eating. And then when we are eating, chi and blood rush to our stomach. And then it basically, just like needles are supposed to draw chi and blood to the source, well, food draws chi and blood to the middle, and then it distracts it from doing all these other things. So the kind of the similar idea that um, if we're not processing food, our liver is free to do other stuff in the body. Mm. Is this also overlapping with the when you're in movement, the liver blood goes to the extremities, yeah, or it's and then when you're in stillness, it it stores in the liver. That is kind of correct. Yeah, it is similar to that. And we usually would say not only just in stillness, technically they say laying down. So here we have to read a little bit into what do they even mean? Is it literally just like laying on, you know, a flat surface? You could, you could say that and resting. Yeah, it, that's a way, one way to read into it. And then most people lay horizontally when it's bedtime. And so we know that the liver stores the blood. It, you know, during its one to three hour time. And so there's some circulating and some storing there that's going on as well. So yeah, you could say that's true, um, but it's also more just about the circulation as opposed to when it's storing blood. Gotcha. Yeah. And so then uh, when it comes to um, also, I think a lot of people are like, oh, well, I should give my intestines a rest. That's true. That really is true. So check out this. If you ever have a patient who you think is spleen deficient or maybe the practitioner you, you themselves, or maybe we're talking directly to patients, whoever, but if you think you're spleen deficient, according to Chinese medicine, there's a couple key kind of, you know, keystone symptoms that we'd be looking for. Not all diarrhea or looser stools is spleen deficiency. Big point to keep in mind, but some of them are, and it's because the spleen is too weak to do its rising and lifting. 
And so a lot of the fluids then descend, you know, not the way they should, but they are descending. And that comes out as looser, softer, or watery stools. And so the people who are like that, it's true that if they do intermittent fasting and they just eat less in one day, their stools will usually solidify and like kind of normalize just with decreasing their food. And this is the same idea. You decrease the workload for a spleen that's, you know, overtaxed, you're going to have normal poops. And then you bring it back up and bring it up to what we consider like a normal daily food intake. Oh, too much, too much for a weak spleen to handle. Now, of course, we can strengthen a spleen when we see this, but it's a good diagnostic tool, even for yourself, um, because you can see, oh, my body would take all that fluid back out. It's just too much. I'm just asking too much of it in this current state. I love that. That's a brilliant understanding of the spleen's role and also how we're presenting our symptomology in that, you know, more isn't better. And because I think a lot of us were like, oh, we got to strengthen the spleen. We got to eat, you know, this food. We have to have that congee. We have to have the warm soup or yeah, daikon would be a big one that would come to my mind. Hmm. Um, But again, too. Yeah. Did they they say that in school? Daikon radish is good for the spleen? Well, they talked about it in the roundabout way of it being good for fortifying your your digestion. No so way. I think too, yeah, but I think because I mean what does that hit on the us being a damp culture? Yes. Yes yeah. it does. That's interesting because I've never heard that from the Chinese way. Um Sorry, guys. For the, for you listeners out there, I'm going to be consistently surprised because I don't have no idea what's spoken about in America very much because it's not where I learned all of my stuff. But that's interesting. So you're exactly right. It's uh, they have a phrase that daikon radish is the poor man's ginseng. Actually, poor person's ginseng. No gender involved there. Yeah. Cool. Um, and it's funny because it actually disperses chi, whereas ginseng does the exact opposite. It strengthens and consolidates chi. But the whole goal is, well, if you can make sure that you never have a chi blockage, that's almost as good as having plentiful chi as you age kind of thing. Right. Because then the chi that you do have is allowed to consolidate without getting interrupted by a stagnation. That's right. And so even if you're running at 70% chi, at least all that chi isn't blocked up. It's not, you know, there's there's no blockages. You won't have pathologies. You might get a little tired, just take a nap, but you're not going to have like the big pathologies, right? So what happens then when you overeat? Gotcha. So there's prone to do in our society. Exactly. Um, By the way, we do have Thanksgiving formulas. We call it Baho Wan. Um, So for those of you who are ready to just eat to the extreme, don't forget to bring in some uh, food staggers. But uh, yeah, so the the big issue is when we overeat, that it's going to harm primarily that spleen stomach area. But there's actually a slight differentiation. So there's a, a kind of a, a colloquial phrase. I've, I don't think I've never been able to find where this one technically comes from. Though we can find where the roots of this phrase come from, like directly from the Neijing and so forth. But it, the phrase is "guoqishang pi, guoeshang wei," which is when you're too hungry, it harms your spleen, and when you're too um, full, it harms your stomach. And there's a really cool element here, which is uh, for any of you who've been in you know, Chinese medicine school, or even heard a practitioner speak about things, it's really easy to mix up spleen and stomach because we just smoosh them together. And that's why people are like, well, let's just call it the middle burner anyway. Well, technically, if you wanted to call it middle burner, don't forget you've got a guan pulse on the other side. So your liver would have to be involved in that conversation too. So we might as well just keep them separate and clarify. 
So when it comes to um, spleen and stomach, the best way to figure this out is directionality. Spleen has to lift, stomach has to descend, and it's only one direction for these organs. Spleen should only go up, stomach should only go down, which means pathology tells us when the stomach is upsurging, bad, bad news. And when the spleen is descending, similarly, bad news. So how do we um, harmonize a middle? We just make them go in the right directions. We make the stomach descend and we make the spleen lift, and it really does start harmonizing that middle pivot point and middle um, burner that's... It, we kind of call it the heavenly pivot or something like that because it's everything is circulating around it. Right. It's I always think of it as the piston in the center of the wheel that turns everything else. That's so true, dude. That is so true. Including so, our kidney cycle for those who paying attention to that one too. Oh. So if someone's presenting with, let's say, stomach chi is upsurging, yeah. they're getting acid reflux, they're getting belching, a little bit of nausea, whatever. Are you solely focused on getting that stomach to descend, or can you also focus on getting the spleen to ascend? Nice. Well, first thing I do diagnostically, and this is super important, is I see if they can burp out songs. Because if they, I mean, if they can burp out songs, oh yeah, it's <laughs> no. I'm just uh, checking the severity in a comical way. No, so you're exactly right. When they're upsurging, um, part of it is uh, proper descending, <laughs> and then part of it is raising the spleen. So. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you still, yeah. I want to have to have a client do that for me. Be like, <laughs> oh, hey, can you burp out a song real quick? I'm just checking to see yeah. if how bad your <laughs> symptoms are. You know, just something simple. Twinkle, twinkle, little star. Yeah. Right? If you can, you get different pitches. <laughs> yeah. So you're exactly right. So you can do both, uh, but we usually focus on. Well, let me, let me clarify this actually. So when it comes to excess things, we usually just, uh, for instance, the one you're talking about, if it was excess stomach upsurging, just descend it. But if it's long-term and therefore often correlating and including a deficient element, you betcha, you betcha. So there's some lifting and descending at the same time. And really any beautiful, perfect balanced formula um, will have this. Now, the funny thing about the word beautiful, perfect balanced formula is it's only beautiful and perfect if it fits the patient, right? But if you look at something like Xiao Chai Wutong, I mean, oof, we could have like seven podcasts on that one formula, but the rising and the descending, whoa, it's so amazing. The harmonizing, the horizontal movement, shout out to a whole middle burner there between liver, gallbladder, and spleen and stomach. I mean, it's just incredible, but it's got two really key herbs. I'm going to drop some herbs for any of you guys urban out out there. Bansha and Shengjiang, this combination of Bansha and Shengjiang is, um, it's actually a small formula. It's called Xiao Bansha Tang, and it's uh, also a Shanghanlun mini formula, which we know is then whenever we pair two herbs, or sometimes three, but usually two, we call that a Duoyao. If it's a classic pairing that really enhances and synergistically builds on each other. And that pairing will fix literally almost any kind of vomiting, at least temporarily, sometimes long term. So what the root causes determines if it's going to fix it up forever or, or fix it long-term or fix it short-term, but it'll almost fix any of them short-term, which is kind of insane. Um, but that's the big pairing in Xiao Chai Hutang that descends the stomach, but Renshen, or which originally actually Dangshan, because Renshen didn't exist in the time of the Shanghanlun in what was known as China at that time. It was, um, it was only up in like the Siberian regions. So Dangshan is the one that strengthens and lifts the spleen. So 
even in Sha Chayu time, you can see it's lifting the spleen while descending the stomach, which is exactly what you just said. Awesome. And so how about the uh, 24 hour fasting? Oh yeah. The intermittent is that one, good right? for people or is that where, where, where does that one fall on our scale and who is that one going to be good for? And what do we got to watch out for? Totes. So Asher's spot on on this one. Remember it, maybe it's annoying, but whenever someone asks the TCM perspective of is something good or bad for me, the answer is literally always depends on who it's for. Right. So intermittent fasting is great, but for who? So obviously if we're malnourished and we can't even get enough food to kind of maintain, no need to fast. You know, look at those people. They have zero dampness. They probably have a dry cracked tongue with cracks like going everywhere. Um, and those they need people, some kanji. <laughs> those, that is the kanji. And actually the really old, like, you know, when the Shangalun was written and everything else back in the day, they were basically like poor farmers um, that were, you know, sorghum in the north, rice in the south, uh, that sort of thing. So you bet. I mean, they could not stand to miss very many meals. So even there's a quote in the Neijing, we'll pull that one up uh, word for word at some point if you guys want, but I'll just paraphrase for now. But it's basically like you don't eat for seven days, you're dead. Well, most people in modern culture, I think we could last seven days, you know? Right. But yeah. back then. Back then, you know, when uh, you know, there was no such thing as a grocery store. Yeah. And back then, actually. So this is a really classic one. In Chinese, ancient Chinese culture, they didn't eat three times a day. Boom! Blast out to uh, all those people who are like, don't miss a meal. If any of you guys have been to Asia or know like very traditional Asian people, they're like, they're the most timely eaters I have ever met. If you go to China and you try to get anything done at 1150, impossible. They're already at lunch. Like they're gone the minute it hits 12. It's just impossible. So they always eat breakfast at seven, always eat lunch at noon, always eat dinner at like five or something. And they're very timely about it. So in Chinese medicine school, a lot of people are taught like, oh, you got to eat your meals at the regular times and don't wait until you're hungry to eat. You have to eat them at regular times. That's not true. It's not true. According to the Neijing, they only ate twice a day. When did they eat? So this, our knowledge of this comes from a lot of like um, uh, kind of uh, archaeological stuff, but also from the Neijing itself because they have a word and it's called sun xie which means literally dinner diarrhea. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's not the most uh, popular of all the pathologies. Um, no. It was hard to get uh, it was hard to get guests to come over. <laughs> yeah, it sounds inconvenient. <laughs> you have to have a toilet real close to your dinner table. There you go. You know, they had special seats. No, no, that would be. <laughs> so dinner diarrhea is a reference. Sun means uh, dinner because on the left side of the character or what we call a radical or a component of the character, is the food and on the right side, or I'm sorry, is the word for evening and on the right side is the one for food. And what this means is these people's diarrhea for this particular pathology looks like the evening meal. And so we know that there is only a morning meal and an evening meal. And what they were is, you know, traditionally we would wake up right around the sunrise, um, technically a little later, but only in the winter. Otherwise we're up right at um, dawn or maybe even just a little bit before. Um, and so as you're up with dawn, you're hungry, you, you know, that's what break fast is. You got to have your breakfast. And so you'd cook up a big bowl of whatever your grain is that you were harvesting and, and farming. So sorghum for the northerners, millet is possible. Um, and then rice, obviously for southerners. So you cook it up and you, what you do is 
you know, every Asian will have a very classic uh, way of making sure that their rice is perfect. And it always involves like this amount of rice and this amount of water on my finger. And then this one, it's hilarious. Everyone has like, it's, yeah, it's very classic. How to cook rice is, uh, is very, very classic, even though we probably shouldn't be eating that much rice. I'm um, sorry for all you rice lovers. Anyway, so they'd cook it so it's solid. So just like you, you're normally eating rice at like a Chinese restaurant or, you know, Indian rice, dry and like solid. I shouldn't say dry, but like not excess fluid. That's your breakfast. And then you go out to the fields, you work, you don't have time to come back for lunch, nor do you have anything that you could bring with you. So they don't eat lunch. What they do is they just stop around noon, take a nap under a tree. And that's actually part of what we call the zhu, um, which is the time period system, the 12 um, two-hour time period systems. So we can talk about that later too. But the idea is you should take your what they call your big sleep at nighttime and your small sleep at noon, which tells us that Chinese culture was the original siesta culture. You got to have the siesta. And the reason you do is because twofold. It's hot in the middle of the day. So you're sleeping under a tree. In fact, the word for rest, xiu, means it's actually the character for a tree, a person leaning on a tree. And then uh, the second reason you want to do it is because when the yang is at its apex or the yang is at its um, lowest point, whatever the opposite of the apex is called, uh, those are the two hardest parts for our body to shift and make this transition. And so we should be sleeping at that time to allow those transition periods to happen better more naturally and not get basically in the way of our own physiological changes. And so obviously that means we should be sleeping our big sleep before midnight. You want to be to sleep at least by 11 so that you're solid sleeping by midnight. But you also want to sleep if you're waking up at, uh, with dawn, you want to be able to uh, be asleep by that uh, midtime, that noontime to make that actually easier as well. And very importantly, they say don't go too long. So 45 minutes is max nap in the day. Oh, I can do that. No problem. Got it. So half an hour, 45 minutes, that's pretty standard. And this will actually happen in China too. But don't forget too, when we talk about noon, which is the apex of yang, it's true. That's if you woke up at dawn. That's why a lot of people kind of get that natural sleepy time around two or three, because if they're waking up at eight, it's, you know, you push everything back two or three hours. Um, and that's when your body naturally wants to take that little dip to switch over. Right. And then, so you're, you're going to be eating dinner then uh, pre-dusk, yeah? Be That's like. right. So you you took the break in the daytime so you don't burn out all your gin and yeah fluids. And then you keep working in the fields until like four, come back before um, nightfall. And then the way you have dinner is you just heat up hot water by itself, like a hot water kettle, and pour it on whatever you had left from breakfast. Oh. So literally what your dinner is, you know, in ancient China is hot water with grains floating in it, which is exactly the description of a certain kind of pathological diarrhea where they have water with grains floating in it. We call that, it's unfortunately been translated as coxcrow diarrhea, which I admit oh. is, is yeah, that's catchy, but it should be called the fifth gung diarrhea. We call it wugong xie in Chinese. The fifth gung actually isn't for coxcrowing. That's the wake up gung. Um, a gung is a two-hour time period in the nighttime, sorry. And so the true coxcrow is usually considered the fourth gung. So if people are being on top of it, it should be the fifth gung. Any hootie. Um, the key is it's basically dawn diarrhea with undigested food, especially focused on grains. So you can see it's really just a description, you know, however um, graphic it is of evening 
evening diarrhea. This is um, very lovely. Hmm. And so, then, mm-hmm. yeah. That was the two to two meals a day. So they had the big meal in the morning, light meal at night. So classically, they'll tell you this too. They should tell you this in Chinese medicine school. Eat good for breakfast. So they, they have a cute little rhyme in Chinese. They say, uh, which means eat good in the morning, eat to your full, like eat your big full meal in the, in the lunchtime and then eat less in the evening. And that's exactly what we should do to stop food stagnation. Yeah, we had a professor that would tell us to eat like a king for breakfast and a beggar for dinner. Exactly. Yeah. And then if you're not eating in the middle of the day, it's actually more classical that way. So yeah, that's exactly right. Nice. And then that's also giving the spleen a chance to rest. You bet. Over the nighttime period. You bet. And especially if you didn't eat during the day too. Huh, I wonder if we'll we'll find a Western analog for that coming up where it's a a big break in the middle of the day. Oh, that's, that's a, like an eight, that's like an eight hour break. Yeah, 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 that's a really good point. So like it's almost like half intermittent fasting. Yeah, yeah, that's a tricky one. Or two intermittent fastings. It's like you eat eight hours and then eat. Yeah, I'll I'll think about that more. There is the Western thing that has shown like snacking is not a very good thing. So grazing is not considered healthy by any standard of medicine now, but not Chinese nor um, Western. Yeah, we see uh, grazing as like a spleen chi deficiency and you just keep on trying to like short lived, but it's like an unhealthy craving. Yeah, you're so right. And this is an interesting one. We can get back to kind of the understanding of differentiating spleen and stomach. So when people are low on energy and they're snacky, that's usually because they're not absorbing their food properly. And that usually comes from one of two things. And Asher totally spot on hit one of them. If their spleen is deficient, they can't absorb properly. So that's an absorption problem. But if their food is stagnated, there's they can't move it through. So food stagnation is also really common for that. And then on the other side, we'd say, okay, well, what's the, you know, the role of the stomach should be to hold in all that food. And that's a really key one. Low appetite is not a spleen deficient symptom. Technically, it's a stomach deficient symptom because it's the stomach that's responsible for what we call nausea, which means drawing food inward and downward. Ah, okay. And so check it out. If you are, you know, for those people who have the low appetite, yeah, you can tonify spleen. Sometimes it makes it worse. You know, it makes it crazy good though move that stomach shout out to like chun pi baidoko sharen all those classic um tummy moving herbs because it'll really move things through food stag herbs will do the same thing nice and then we've talked about food stagnation foods too mm-hmm. so we got daikon radish yo we have cilantro yes and then is it going to be mustard seeds or the flour so That's nice. The last dude. one. Yeah. So technically, if we're going to break it down solid on the cilantro, man, we call that hu sui. Um, and so it's actually an actual Chinese. If you go to modern China, um, it's called xiang cai. But if you go to the classic, um, I think it's Shandong Bunsao, but it's the old classic books. They have an ancient name for cilantro. Cilantro have ancient name. Bearded cilantro. Anyway, it's called hu sui. So uh, it's great for food stack. But you have to kind of realize that if you're going to be eating cilantro for stopping food stack, any is helpful. 
But really, if you have food stagnation, you need to be eating like two bunches a week, um, which is great. Oh. Yeah, it's yeah, not, that it's not too much. I mean, yeah. I should, I could eat a whole bunch in a day. I realize some people don't like it though, but just, you know, it's a pretty gentle medicinal. So it's, it's more what we'd call a superfood, not actually an herb. Herb would be like a super duper food. And this is only at superfood. And then, well, the mustard though pops yeah. up in our herbology a lot too. That's a true, uh, yeah. So that's white mustard seed. And I think it's the same varietal, but we call it by which would be like white mustard seed. I think it might be something sinensis, so who knows if it's the exact same variable, but I will tell you, it is incredible. And actual Western mustard seeds are good too. So the yellow one's good, just not as powerful. And I think the white one is probably similar, at least close to the Chinese one, the white mustard seed in China. And this one is actually great for phlegm. So we've got cilantro is great for food stag. White mustard seed is great for fluid stag, which is phlegm and dampness. And then radish, or even more powerful, radish is a food. It's a good food, superfood. But then radish seeds are the true medicine. That's called life woods. That's for cheese stag. So we got cheese stag, food stag, fluid stag. Three stags. But daikon, super solid. And for those people who, I I know some people use daikon more as a cover crop or or, uh, like a kind of, um, energy free a digger what do you call it aerator oh yeah i use it as a driller driller a driller yeah. yeah 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 to make holes all the way down right yeah yeah so good i love it and some people know that even if they don't plan on eating the daikon which is sad yeah or using the seed now i'll save the seed i was just letting it reseed in the garden but i'll collect it yeah use it. oh dude yeah. that's a true one um shout out to people trying this at home Boy, you'll get farty. If you use too much live food, it'll make you, it'll be a real farty party, but it's breaking up chi blockages in your digestion as you go. So maybe just pick a nice socially acceptable day and uh, fart it up. Yeah. If someone is already gassy, uh, is that going to be a good one to finish clearing? If you can isolate and, and identify that there's chi stagnation involved. Yes. So you're absolutely right. Like, so you're so right, actually, because if you think about like Baohuan, classic food stag formula, I mean, really just a genius formula. Shout out to Zhu Danxi, my second all-time favorite doctor, um, right right behind Sun Sun Miao. Zhang Zhongjing's got to be in there too. All right, sorry, no rankings, but top top five all the way. Uh, so Zhu Danxi was the fluid nourishing or yin nourishing school. He, that was, that was, he captained that ship. Um, he made that formula, Baohuan, it's got life in it. Um, and it's, it, it is a bit of a farty party. So when you take that formula, people will be clearing it out. But if there's food stag, oh my God, it really makes a big difference. There.